Blog Talk Radio. Um, in, in the other, in the first four books that um, are current day, 
I try to put in, infuse actual events that I was involved in. Each book has four or five, ten events in, in them that um, actually happened and I fictionalized. In The Innocence, it's probably 50 to 60 percent um, actually what happened. I fictionalized it, but um, there are incidents I was involved in when I was working South Central Los Angeles on a street narcotics team. Uh, um, the next book in the series is is also uh, which comes out a year from now. It's, it's called it's going to be called The Reckless. They changed the title. Um, it was called The Betrayed, and that is another book that is even even more um, infused with my past experiences. And it was a very uh, emotional book for me because it was a friend of mine that was killed in the line of duty. Uh, the third book I'm working on right now, and I have the outline for the fourth book. Um, let's see. So the um, the first book, the second book in the series, the replacements, uh, was is a story about a when I was on about a crimes team, I was following a murder suspect around. He was um, he went in, he went in prison for uh, life, 25 to life. Did 12 years, got out. He uh, committed another murder, went in, did uh, got 25 to life, got out in 12 years. And uh, they thought that there might be a chance that he might kill somebody else, so they put my team on him to follow him around as a, uh, <laughs> a protection for the public. And this guy was so bad that he would have, if I would have put him in the book exactly, he would have been a caricature because he was so evil. His name, uh, I better not say his name, <laughs> but in the book his name was Carl Drago. And in order for me to make him work in, in the book, I had to give him some humanity, because otherwise he would have been a caricature. So <laughs> I gave him too much humanity, and when I tried to kill him off in the next book, which was uh, The Squandered, the publisher said, no, no, we like Carl Drago, you got to keep him. So now I'm dragging <laughs> Carl Drago through the, <laughs> through the whole series. <laughs> Even though that uh, he needed to be killed off. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, so, um, and so, so you basically, so you basically have taken your life story and all your experiences being, you know, a, a cop in, in Los Angeles, and and kind of almost using some of your cases and some of the people that you know, you're putting them in fictionalized form. Exactly. I, 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 I um, when I first started in law enforcement. Uh, violence intrigued me, so I actually started chasing violence, and um, I, I got onto a, I got onto two different SWAT teams, two different you know, two different tours on SWAT. I was on a violent crimes team. I worked major narcotics, so I was involved in a lot of uh, heavy capers. And the shootouts that I, I describe uh, in the books are exactly the way they happen. It was in some wild, some wild shootings. Wow. Uh, now, I mean. When you when you're kind of going back and writing them, are you kind of reliving them in your head again? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. How how is that kind of when you go back and you see kinds of the things you do, and you're like, uh, whether it's like, wow, I mean, this was a dangerous situation. I mean, this was something that could have gotten me killed, or like you said, you know, a, a friend of yours, you know, was shot and killed. How how is that emotional thing for you as an author to be able to kind of Put that into your, your your characters when when they're kind of in the same situations. Yeah, it's a good question. In book um, The Reckless, I just finished it and turned it in. It was a tough book to write because it was a, a friend of mine. And when I was writing it, um, I write a thousand words a day, and I, then then the next day I go back twenty pages and I edit forward till I get to the new stuff, and I write another thousand words. So I'd sit down in my desk and start writing, and I would find that. I had put my friend's real name in, instead of the character's name because I was writing him so close to what my my friend was like. Uh -huh. So so yeah, I, I do. It does it does affect uh, the story. I think. Yeah, I mean that's kind of like the real life emotion that you and I think that readers kind of really get an idea of knowing what it's like to to be and you know because let's face it you know 99.99 percent of us around the united you know around the world will, will never be involved in situations where we have to see those kinds of things or do those kinds of things so when we read them even if it's in a fictionalized setting you would probably have to say that 90 percent of that is, is probably pretty true and and how things go down whether names are changed to 
you know, uh, protect the guilty or not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and there, <laughs> there's two worlds. There's a reality of fiction, and there's a reality of of what's what really happens. And a couple of times, I, I do talks, you know, different panels at conferences and stuff. And one person said about one incident. She said, uh, "That's not the way that happens. That's not the way that works." <laughs> and I can't contradict her because that's exactly the way it works. But people are so um, uh, not brainwashed, but influenced by TV yeah. and fiction. CSI and, and NCIS and yeah. Exactly. And then um, Bruno is an African-American uh, detective, and I did that to add another layer of conflict. But um, a couple of times people have come up to me at conference and said, oh, I thought you were uh, black. <laughs> Why would that matter? <laughs> I know, I know. But I, I guess because... The, the, and most of those people. That's like saying, "Oh, I thought you were five foot five. Well, why would that matter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think they were trying to say that people. I, I I captured the the conflict of of uh, African American detective. Oh, and they got that from the book, huh? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Bruno, okay. there, there's 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 a prejudice. Not a lot. It's not heavy. It's just it's just I put a light touch on it. Uh, but it, Bruno's not aware of it. He is not consciously aware of it. It happens around him, um, and mm-hmm. he doesn't really take notice of it. Um, and I do that because I don't want to. I, I, that's not that's not my main thrust of my books. Now, when did you when did you leave the police force? Uh, I did. Um, I did 28 years in Southern California, LA County Sheriffs and San Diego County Sheriffs, um, and I reti- and I retired 28 years in California in 2008. And I left and went to work as a special agent for the state of Hawaii, which is the real Hawaii Five O. There were 50 special agents in the, where I worked, and uh, uh-huh. I worked for them from 2008 to 2011. That was a big, big culture shock and a big, a lot of fun, but uh, it wasn't my cup of tea because they did not uh, look at law enforcement the same way that I did. Really? So is Bruno going to take them on? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know. I've got. Uh-huh. I've got the th- next three Bruno books already sketched out in my head and right. taking notes on them, so it's going to be a while if I do get to that, unless it's a, one of the standalone books that I'm writing. Okay. Or, you know, maybe following a criminal over to Hawaii and the shootout or everything occurs and having to deal with, <laughs> you know, the way. You never know. There's a lot of ways you can go with that one. You go with that one a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah, I, I know. That's true. So, but when, you know, being in law enforcement, um, you know, you, you left just about, you know, you left 10 years ago. From, from LA, so and you were and you've been in it for over 25 years, and you see kind of how law enforcement has, I guess, changed in the way of public perception. How how are you able to kind of you know weave that difference into the experiences that you had into literally, I mean, with body cameras and everything now being recorded and being dissected uh, so much in the public that was never done that way before. To kind of relay that maybe into your books, uh, into a familiar, into a uh, familiarity that people will kind of recognize today. Well, the um, the, the current day books occur with Bruno Johnson being an ex-cop, ex-detective, so he doesn't have uh, an exposure to the, the body cams and that kind of thing. There is in in um, the Vanquished uh, a, a unit camera. Is is used uh, just the way it happens in real life. But Bruno, because he's uh, ex cop, ex detective, he doesn't um, have that much exposure to it. So the I, I write, I'm writing the four books, the four prequels, just the way they happen, exactly the way they happen, with the same kind of technology, the same kind of weaponry, the same kind of tactics, because that's the where I, the time period I was in at Los Angeles. Um, I try to put in a smattering of current day stuff in the, in the current books, but not so much because Bruno is a dinosaur moved forward into current day. He's uh, in late 40s when in the first book happens, The Disposables. So he, he's working in a liquor store, so he doesn't have that kind of exposure to technology. Um, he does have to deal with cell phones, which was a big uh, revolution in law enforcement. Um, I didn't have that in Los Angeles or San Bernardino at the time, um, but he, he deals with that as well. So um, when I first started in law enforcement, 
the first week in the locker room, all the all the coppers were saying, "Ah, oh, it's not like it used to be. It's all ruined." This was in 1979, um, and so the pendulum. <laughs> I, I know, the pendulum swings. So you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, they hated the cops, and then the pendulum swung back, and the cops were beloved, and um, they wanted to put everybody in jail, and they you know put money toward prisons, and now the pendulum has just swung the other way. They don't like the cops, they hate the cops, and they're letting all the crooks out of the, out of the prisons. Uh, but that's just the way life is, and it's gonna it'll swing back eventually when people get tired of it. Yeah, I mean things always go through cycles. Um... And, and and that's just the way that, that it goes. But when, when you look at yourself, I guess, as an author, and you look back at book one, and now you look through book five, and, and now you've written six, you have seven, and how has David Putnam changed as an author? How can, how can, you know, what will fans notice if they start with book one and go through that they will see a difference in David Putnam, the author, also? Well, like I said, I was on uh, I was on book number thirty eight when I sold number thirty four. I was writing for twenty five <laughs> years, going to conferences and trying to hone my craft. So I had a I had a pretty good handle on writing when I sold the first book. But the the books I've written for Ocean View, I have definitely honed my craft even more. And I think um, the books have become more character driven than story driven as you go along. I think you'll see you'll see that change, that shift, and I think it's for the better. Yeah. Do, do you kind of work on something? Do you look at yourself and say, I need to have better dialogue, better scene selection, better character development, you know, better pacing or, or whatever when you, when you go to that next book and, and you try to push yourself to challenge? Because it, the, the one thing that you get when you're in a series you know, from an author is you can get a little stagnant and you can kind of become a little bit of formulaic, and, and fans start noticing that. So you almost have to kind of push the boundaries every book with something trying to make something a little bit more stand out do you kind of do that in your thought process um i <laughs> i write to a strict structure so i don't know what's going to happen in my books at all i think they call i'm described as a pantser seat of the pants writer so i take an incident that was very powerful or emotional to me and i write that incident <clears throat> and I hang as much conflict in that scene as I can. Um, mostly what really happened, but I also leave avenues that I could explore later on, and then I write the book from there. So I don't think my books are going to be formulaic because I don't know what's going to happen in them. Um, and in most of my books, the way it goes is um, I write that emotional scene and that inciting incident. I have to go back after I finish the book and change that scene is in the wrong place. I usually have I usually have to push it further into the book, or add yeah, or add two chapters in the front of it. So uh, I, I I don't know. I, I talked to other authors, and I don't know if anybody writes the way the same way I do. But I do not know what's going to happen in the book, and that's why I like writing because I, I sit down every day and I, I follow a set structure where um, conflict, complication, crisis, conclusion. If I get stuck. I look to where I am, and there's five things a scene has to do to make it work. And if the, if the scene's not working for me, I analyze it and see where I'm missing on those five things and where I am in the overall story arc in the conflict, complication, crisis, and inclusion. And then I know where where I'm making the mistake. I go back and fix it. Hmm. Gotcha. Interesting. Now, do you get a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I just say, yeah, I just, I, I like to hear a thought process from authors on how they kind of, uh, you know, do their thing and, and work their craft, and because it is, it, it's, I always hear something different, and I always like to understand, you know, how you kind of get, you know, into the mode or, or the mood, and, and to be able to, you know, sit down and create something, even though there is some sort of backstory there that you already have, you're not sitting down and creating something totally from scratch, because, you know, you do have, um, you know something to go off of with the series, but it's still not an easy. It's not an easy thing. I think that a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're writing a series, so you're just, you know, writing the same thing. Why not? But it's not an easy thing to do. Well, I don't know if fans and, and, really realize what it's like. <laughs> um, and in the disposables, I wrote that inciting incident because I was 
on a team where we used to follow felons around, follow bank robbers around until they rob banks, and we take them down coming out of the bank, that kind of thing. And that's what the, the first scene in Disposables uh, depicts. Um, but I had, to, I had to give Bruno a bunch of background in order for it to work, a heavy background. Mm-hmm. So when I got to the book four, I went back, and that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, the background I described in the first book is what I am writing the books about. So in the, in the four books, the pr- four prequels, I do have to follow somewhat of a structure because I have to bring each one of those items of background into play, and I have to describe how they happened and what happened to them. So I, I, what I do is I, I list those, those items, and I mark them off as I get to them, as I use them in the book, uh, the prequels. Oh, okay. Huh, yeah, very cool. Is there, is there any character in the first five books that are out now that you would like to explore more? Now, maybe not giving them their own book, but maybe highlighting them again going forward, you know, characters that maybe had a bigger role or a bigger voice than you thought they were going to have when things started. Well, like, like, like I said, Carl Drago was one of them. Um, he yeah, the villain. Yeah, the villain. Uh, I think I think I could write a standalone just about just about him. Now I've, I know him well enough, um, and I, I know the real crook too. Uh, I I actually masqueraded. I, I picked him up at the at prison, masquerading as a parole officer, and I'm the one that drove him to his motel. So I got to talk to him, and there's a bigger story to that too. But I I, <laughs> I can't tell that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, Robbie Wicks is a guy that. That Bruno worked for. He was a very interesting character. Marie, the the woman who saves Bruno, and I tell everybody that my my books are described as romantic thrillers. I wrote the thriller part. My wife made me put the romantic part in. So uh, Marie is a very strong character. In fact, she's the one that aligns herself with Carl Drago, um, and that's I think the reason why the compatibility um, the the publisher liked it so much. So there, yeah, there are several characters that I, I could go forward with. I think um, that are that are standouts. Huh, very cool. Now, let's just say that some. I mean, I've always I've always been curious, and I tried to research, and I, I probably just haven't done a good enough job. Or, but I've always wanted to kind of understand. Let's say that as a private citizen, that there's some kind of a, you know a case that was solved and it was done. But you want to try to maybe understand like the case files. Can a private person be able to contact the LAPD on a case that was closed and be able to see, you know, what part of the case files are they able to see? If, you know, maybe the thing never went to trial and the guy just pleaded guilty, so there's no court transcripts, but how are they able to kind of, the, the, the public under, like, Freedom of Information Act, get those kinds of informations? Well, the only report that they really can't get is the one that has an active, it's an active case. I think anybody can go in, um, it used to be, and just walk in and say, I want this, this report number, and you pay for the, and you know, it used to be they paid for them, and now I think that law changed as well. You can walk in and say, I want to see this report. And So you get like autopsy will, records or every the whole nine yards? Yeah, yeah, if, if they're available. Um, if they were put into the public record. Uh, and But a lot of times they'll be redacted. Like the victims' names will be will be blacked out, or or sure. especially in sex crimes, or the addresses, um, witnesses. Now, uh, you you would get, get the whole report except for um, the list of witnesses, victims. Uh, I think you in the sus you get the suspect, but the witness and victims and reporting parties are kept separate now from the reports because they don't want people coming in and getting those and going after them. Oh, sure. Separate. Sure, but, yeah, but you can get—I mean, you can get anything. Uh, as far as wow. you know, something's changed since I was there. You can walk into the front of a <clears throat> the police station and say, "Yeah, I'd like to see this re- the report on this incident." And they'll so you would have to know the report number that you're looking at. Okay. Or you can know the last name of the address, and they can pull it up. And sometimes you'll oh. come against the come up against a, an obstinate clerk who'll say, "No, no, I, I can't do that for you." But if you push the issue and ask for the watch commander and all that stuff, um, they will do it for you. It might take some time, but yeah, so they can do. Okay, that's very interesting. I, I, and I'm sure a lot of the stuff is almost probably electronic, and you can almost, I think you maybe can ask for some of it online. Maybe they just send you a PDF and say this is, you know, they scan yeah, in and they say this is what were, we have. 
they were changing everything over to um, all digital when I, when I was leaving, so I'm sure it's all digital now, where the, the, the officers oh, yeah. type it in um, and it's sent electronically to this watch sergeant who approves it because paper was just too unwieldy. I mean, there was there was a yeah, warehouse of paper. reports. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Too too much paper going around. We don't need all that paper. Right. Electronic is just as is just as good, without a doubt. Right. Yeah. So so we know what you got going on in the series, so you're gonna be a you know, you're gonna be a busy boy, but do you have any thoughts of doing anything outside the series right now? Or right now is it just is it just Bruno Johnson and that's what we're gonna see after the Innocence and the other three books that you already have? One's done, the other one's written and the other one's in the planning stage. <laughs> right. Right. Um yeah, I write two books a year, and so I write a standalone every year as well. One is going around New York with my agent right now, um, and I'm optimistic about it. But I have uh, several that are that are of publishable quality, but I haven't, I haven't put them out yet. I have another series that I just started that I like a lot, and it's called the Dirty Angel series. And it's about three different women in three different um, environments. And uh, Nice. One is a uh, ex-surgeon. One is a... Uh, FBI agent, and one is a clerk at an airline's counter, and each one has a different conflict. So where's the best place everyone can find you? Is it, is it, uh, is it your website, dwputnam.com? Is that the best place for everyone to find out everything that you got going on and, and email you and contact you about all your books? Uh, it's davidputnambooks.com. Ah, davidputnambooks.com. Right. Okay. And uh, that's my website, and you'll... My wife keeps it updated. You'll see the. <laughs> the oh, there's another one that came up, dwputnam.com, just to let you know, and that has all of your books, too. Oh, it did. dwputnam.com comes up, too. Oh, yeah, my wife. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know if someone made that up, but um, yeah, that has all of your stuff out there, and, it, and it, it looks like it's updated, except it doesn't have The Innocence. It has The Vanquished as the number one book on there. So just to yeah, let you know, people might get confused. So davidputnambooks.com yeah. is the best place to find out. So. Yeah, she's fabulous. Yeah. Hey. Also. I did 38 events last year, and I'm going to be doing a lot of events this year. And I also do a talk if anybody wants me to come out and talk. It's an hour talk. On, it's called The Anatomy of Violence and What It Takes to Shoot Someone. And I go through violent confrontations as they accelerate in my career and up until the first time I, I was involved in an officer-involved shooting. <clears throat> and I explain exactly what happens, the dynamics involved in that violent confrontation. And it takes about an hour, and I've had great reviews on it if anybody's interested. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much. So they can contact you through your site. That's wonderful. Thank yes. you. Yes. Well, hey, David, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so, again. Thank you so much. Uh, really great to see you know Bruno Johnson getting a good kick in the butt here, and um, it's going to go on for at least I guess you want to say eight books. That's what you got going on. Right. So it's great to be able to see that. The Innocence is. Um, let's see. That book comes out in February. So it comes out February the sixth. So right. if people are listening now, you can pre-order it and get it February 6th, or if you're listening after that date, then it's available. Go on Amazon and pick it up however you buy books. So thank you again so much for coming on, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It was great. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. So again, everybody, that is author David Putnam. Go to davidputnambooks.com for more information on the Bruno Johnson series, including the latest book that is out called The Innocence. Um, and you want to make sure that you go back and, and check out all of them. Uh, start with the replacements and kind of work your way forward. Another great author to put on your bookshelf. We're going to take a short, quick break, and we will be back here in a couple minutes with our next author, J.D. Horn, and he's going to be discussing The King of Bones and Ashes, which is the first book in his new series. Excited to hear about that. Here you go.
So again, everybody, I want to thank David for being on. Uh, it was great to be able to talk to him for the first time. And now we are going to transition over into our next author. We learned of um, of J.D. Horn when we got his book, and my wife actually got it, and she goes, wow, she, you know, she loves reading things about New Orleans and, and getting into that mystical kind of area. And, and this is a you know book about witches. Um, the... Uh, it is the, the, the actual series is The Witches of New Orleans, book one. So uh, he has a couple other series. I want to make sure that you – this is the Witches of New Orleans book. The book is called The King of Bones and Ashes, and when she picked it up, she was very, very intrigued. So got a hold. We got with J.D. back and forth, and now we're able to speak with him. So, J.D., we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I mean, it was great for us to be able to connect, and uh, it just happened to be one of those books that, you know, w- w- we get over 10000 a year, and it's just kind of stuck out. Uh, like I said, you know, my wife loves everything, you know, about, like, the, the New Orleans, you know, big Anne Rice fan and Heather Graham fan, and, and you know, now you're kind of uh, in the realm of, of taking New Orleans to another height and showing another layer of, of that city, which is so deep in tradition uh, in this kind of way. So, Tell us about, you know, the latest, the book one now. This is the kickoff book, The King of Bones and Ashes. Well, I'm, going to, I'm going to start with um, New Orleans, like you were mentioning. Um, it's, Which is it, a character in itself, let's face it. it. It is, and I have to say I have never, never encountered a city that screams right me as loudly as New Orleans. Um, my background with New Orleans, um, I had always wanted to go because I, too, am a huge, obviously, Anne Rice fan. No, anyone who's read my stuff knows no Anne Rice, there would be no J.D. Horn. Um, but <laughs> for years, I wanted to go. And um, many people who knew me really well, I mean, not just one, many people just said, oh, New Orleans isn't your kind of place. You wouldn't like it. Go somewhere else, you know. And then came up, I went to the Tennessee Williams Festival, the Saints and Sinners portion of it, um, about four years ago. I was in that city approximately 17 seconds before I realized I was madly in love. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a we place We were just like there no in uh, December. My wife and I were yeah, just there at the beginning of December. Yeah. Did you see the bonfires? I was curious about how that was. They do the, the um, holiday bonfires out on the river? No, we were there way, but we were there December 1st. Oh. So we didn't oh, yeah, see yeah, any later. of that. Yeah, we were only there for like three days. It was like our Christmas present to each other. We left like on the 1st. And came back, I think, the fifth. Uh, well, I have to say, I've yeah. been back a few times since. I love New Orleans. Um, I will continue to go. It's kind of nice because um, whenever I want to go, I just say I need to do more research now. So that's a yeah. great excuse to go. But, um, yeah, New Orleans is a character in itself. And it's it's difficult to write um, because my first series is set in Savannah. And Savannah, I love that city. It's, it's really a big, small town. And Savannah has – really two, maybe three stories, but really two stories it tells about itself. So it's sort of easier to get your hand on that city, easier to figure out how to build it in as a character. New Orleans tells so many different stories about itself. It's, it's absolutely, you know, it's kind of like the story of the, you know, the elephant and the people who are describing it based on how, what they feel versus what they could see. It's their, no matter who approaches New Orleans, New Orleans is going to tell you a different story. And I've talked to them. A few natives, because I really do, even though I write fantasy, I really try to ground it deeply in reality, and I really try to get the spirit of a place, try to work in um, the actual flavor of the, of the city, and I talk to several um, uh, natives or people who have lived there a long time now, and um, what I've been told universally is, give it up, you're not going to get New Orleans right, because there there are so many different New Orleanses that... Um, no matter how perfect your version is, someone's going to come along and tell you you got something wrong. So just accept that. Absolutely. I do think that's, that's a character, that's part of the Creole mixture character of New Orleans, that um, it comes, there's so many different angles, so many different colors, so many different flavors, that um, you do your best and you pick what you love and um, that's what you write. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean with, with, when you're talking about a city like New Orleans, yeah, everybody's going to have some kind of a different experience when they go there. They're going to experience it in a different way personally. So however you write it is the way that you personally view it and see it. And I always thought that for someone to say, oh, you got that wrong, well, you know, that's how you might view it. That's how you might have it in, in your way. But that doesn't mean that that person is wrong. That's their experiences with, with, their, you know, with their city. And there's only about, you know, I would say 
maybe 10 cities in the United States that you could really put that kind of a, a stamp on that, you know, you, you get that different culture where you go, like a Boston or an L.A. or a New York or a Chicago. It's just so trans. It's just so different when you're there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so, yes. so then you got the book. I do. I have the book. The first book in the series is called The King of Bones and Ashes. And um, it, okay, I know it sounds funny that I'm doing yet another witch series, but um, my, they're unrelated. My first series, Witching Savannah, um, is, is much closer to urban fantasy, at least the first three books. And as I, as I grew in my storytelling, I sort of started taking the different directions, much to the delight of some and the dismay of others. Um, but um, it's, it's, the Witching Savannah series is a lot more user-friendly in a lot of ways. Um, this series is um, much closer to horror um, than Witching Savannah, and this is much closer to um, – I, well, I like to think of it as sort of a blend of uh, magical realism and horror um, and with a good dose of Southern Gothic because I everything I write basically is Southern Gothic. You know, I, you cut me and I bleed Southern Gothic. So um, it's this one is um, – bit darker it is an ensemble piece you have three main point of view characters um and i hope i think that they are each well-rounded and um well i hope they're fascinating there are there are three women um one is alice who is our first point of view character we meet her first as a young girl and then we meet her again later in life um i won't get into what happens to her in between um she is from the premier witch family in new orleans and frankly that isn't saying much these days because magic is fading away and even at the top of the pyramid these witches are losing their power and they are you know doing whatever they can to hold on to their their power their privilege their you know um abilities to control their own realities and so they're willing to basically sacrifice anything or anyone many of them and alice is this you know innocent young girl at first who comes in to um, this type of world where magic is already fading. Um, another character is um, Lisette. And Lisette, um, I wanted, you, you can't do paranormal in New Orleans without addressing voodoo. And I didn't want right. to go with that, oh, isn't this exotic? Isn't this scary? You know, oh, look what these strange people are doing. Um, I did a lot of reading, and I did some tours, and I talked to some people, and um, some very gracious people, might I add. Um, and I, you know, I voodoo is a religion. It is a it it is an actual is. religion that is every bit, in my opinion, every bit as valid as my own. Because I mean, in my head, all all religion is metaphor. You know, I'm, I don't take anything literally, and um, although lots of people do. So anyway. Voodoo is a religion. I wanted to treat it from that angle. I wanted to treat it with respect. I wanted to get as much um, of the true kind of faith in as I could, but obviously I'm writing as an outsider. So I I do hope that anyone who is um, an adherent to that faith will forgive me where I get clumsy because I am, I'm writing fantasy and I'm an outsider and, you know, that raises a whole lot of questions, you know, about whether I should be trying to tell a story, but I felt if I were going to present New Orleans in its actual light, I wanted to have a family who is linked to voodoo. And Lisette Perot, her, she runs um, a voodoo supply shop um, in the French Quarter. And happily, I do get out of the French Quarter. I, I try to spread the story across the city so you get more than just the French Quarter that everyone knows Nivin writes about. Um, right. But she is my, she's my French Quarter, one of my French Quarter characters. And um, – she runs a shop that she inherited uh, from her mother, um, who is one of the big uh, uh, mambos um, in New Orleans. So she is um, uh, – she's, sort of, she's a middle-aged mother character. Um, so we have the young woman, we have the middle-aged mother character. And then there's a third character, I, and I really want to take credit for this, because if anyone can prove I'm wrong, I will, I will admit to it. But I think that I am introducing the first – Socialist exotic uh, exotic dancer witch into fantasy. So Evangeline oh. KC, I love this character. She is she is liberated. She is in so many ways. She is sexually liberated. She is independent, and she still she still lets the wrong man into her life. Um, so there's a bit of that too. But um, she's 
you know, I, I do think that even though this character, Evangeline, has um, issues with her parents, which one of them is um, a, a, a storefront preacher, her father, and her mother, a 300-year-old witch. So you can imagine that there were issues in that family. Um, and But I do think that I've avoided that sort of damaged, um, you know, the, sort of the cliche of the damaged um, sex worker who had a bad relationship with her father. I think that um, you do see some of the relationship with her father coming through in her own sense of self-worth. But she, in a large way, has overcome that, and she uses her business. She uses her sexuality. Um, she encourages other women who are in the same role to build lives for themselves. So she's, you know, she basically she runs um, a child care service, and she may, helps them get health care, and she helps them go to school if they want because she wants to put them in a position where when their tits sag and their asses sag, they still have a way of making a living. So. Right. I, I love that character. Obviously, I'm rambling on about her the most. So she's she's oh, one of the ones oh. I feel the most energy for. So she's she's a lot of fun. She's tough. I mean, now did she um, did she become that when you, when you were sitting down and you were crafting and you were and you were starting to get into the story? Did you know that she was going to be that big, or did she just kind of evolve into that? Oh my goodness! You know, um, you hear about plotters versus pantsers, and there are plotters yeah. who. They can tell you, they sit down, they write an outline, they write character studies, and they can tell you from page one to the last page exactly what's going to happen. They build in the beat. Um, they sit down, they write absolutely brilliant, thrilling books. That is so not me. Um, I'm a total pantser, and I will come up with um, a story arc, a loose story arc. I'll know basically where something is going. Um, and I, then I start writing, and as characters um, evolve or fall away, because I've had a lot of my books, I plan characters, and I know how they fit in, and then they don't want to fit in, or they don't want to come alive, they don't want to participate. And so they fall to the wayside, and other characters, much to my surprise, will pop up and fill that void and take the story in a whole new direction that um, I think is a lot better than what I usually I, – I, plan out because these characters um they dig deep they're part of my subconscious in a way that when i'm trying to think things through i miss a lot of um a lot of qualities that i think my subconscious brings into a story and they they are sort of the bridge for that so yeah no i i i go with whatever character starts talking to me the best and evangeline um she she is um one of those characters um we that too i mean to a large degree alice was hard to write Alice was hard to capture. Um, she she ran away from me. Every time I got close, I thought I knew who she was. She ran away from me. And we were, I was like six weeks from this book being due, and I still couldn't fit the character who was supposed to be one of the main characters into it. I didn't know how she fit. And finally, um, one night, middle of the night, I realized what her her um, sort of background was, what her issues were, where she'd actually been during this missing period. And I thought, oh, and from that point on, she was alive for me. She was waiting for me to come find her. And um, I, it was worth, the, it was worth the, um, the search, but I must admit, I wish the girl would have let me know much earlier because I was, I was sweating bullets when I was trying to finish <laughs> the first book. So, um, yeah, but no, I do. I, le- I know it sounds funny because anyone who's read my books know that I toss out plot twists like, like Frisbees, you know, I love plot twists. I'm like Miss King, the plot twist. And, um, but none of that is really part of a a heavy plot um, process. It is part of the characters. As I learn more about who they are, they reveal more to me. I start seeing that they might react in situations in a different manner than I would have expected originally. And that's where most of the plot twists come from is that someone who I thought would never do something is like, oh, yeah, I would do that. Or someone who I was counting on to play the heavy or something suddenly moves. And I realize, oh, that's why they are the way they are. They're not really the villain of this piece. So, you know, I, it's very fluid. And I basically I just type whatever the voices tell me. Nice. I mean, I always find it funny when I hear people say, yeah, I wrote a 200-page outline. I'm like, why the hell didn't you just write the book? Oh, I know. Really? I mean, I, I God bless them because they turn out such tight, um, you know, well-scripted stories that you, you they, that pull the reader along. And I, I, I know that's what you're supposed to do, but I can't write that way. I 
the joy for me in writing is experiencing the story myself and um, experience the characters as they come alive and feel, you know, tell me their stories. Um, if I have to sit and write off, of, I've tried this. I've, oh, I was such a miserable failure at it. Um, if I have to sit and write off of um, of an outline, I will give up writing because I just I it's that then it becomes a chore, and it loses the kind of the playfulness for me. And I really need that playfulness. Yeah. Now, did you have you plotted out? I mean, have you thought about an ending, or is this going to be an ongoing? Uh, is this just going to be an ongoing series? Is, is is this going to be seven books or just ongoing? It depends. Um, the okay. first, I, 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 I've thought about the, this series as having separate seasons, sort of like with a television show where um, there's a continuing story arc, but you may have slightly different cast of characters. You have oh. changes that it's not, it isn't like you're following from, you know, one page of the, the last page of the last book to the first page of the next book and that it's the, it's necessarily exactly the same but um i the main arc that we're dealing with the um the the final days of magic or what people assume are going to be the final days of magic that storyline will be resolved in the first three books so it's set up as a classic trilogy in that you know, the, the story begins in the first, it sort of bridges in the second, and I hope it's a successful bridge because I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing the second book. That was a lot of fun. Um, and to the third where you sort of see this, that part of, the, part of the story resolve itself. What I'm trusting is that I think these characters are strong enough that even after the plot is solved, you know, these characters, their lives will suggest other stories. So, um, you know, I, I hopefully it'll go on for a while, um, but, you know, if it's three books, it's, they're going to be, I hope, full, I hope three really well-written books that um, tell a, a satisfying story. So it's not like you're going to get left somewhere. Um, you're going to see the, you're going to see the story you came in to see. You're going to see the whole movie. But um, hopefully, there'll be other stories that these ter- characters can tell me about themselves. Huh? Yeah. I mean, that, when you start, you know, looking ahead and, and whatnot, and, and I like the fact of. You know, you don't really know when it's going to end, but, you know, which is kind of a surprise for you because that's, you know, you got to kind of keep yourself surprised. you got to keep yourself engaged and interested because if you start becoming bored with your own <laughs> writing, I think, the, uh, I think the fans realize that and they, can kind of, and they can kind of see that coming out, you know, as the author. But you also said that this book is a lot more on the horror side than your other series. Do you see that trend continuing? Oh, goodness, you know. I, I, one of the the people um, who read the book early, um, she asked me, did you intend this to be this dark? And I had to admit, no, I did not intend um, the darkness and the the sort of closeness to horror. Um, I had intended sort of a a lighter paranormal mystery, and it just did not come out that way. There were so many aspects of my own personal life that sort of bled into what was going into the mood of the story at the time. and so I, I think that these characters, this world, um, uh, let me jump back to New Orleans. I think New Orleans has um, kind of, uh, there's a macabre sort of undertone to it when you're there. It's like there's, there's always um, a continual process of decay. And yeah. I think that New Orleans lends itself to, it lends itself to horror. Um, and not, I mean, I know not just the romantic vampire type of horror, but, things that are really, you know, horror, um, closer to horror. Now, when I say that, I've, I've heard, um, and I should find out who said this because I'm paraphrasing and I should be quoting, um, but I've heard horror um, defined as being the absolute lack of hope. Um, I never get there. There's always, you're always going to see some kind of hope in my writing, in the book. So, but it gets pretty darn close. I will take my main characters to very dark places, but I, pull them back you know um they come back from they may be worse for the wear and they're they're changed as life does to all of us um but yeah it gets pretty close to horror just with a dash of hope in there you know i always defined horror as a book with no rules because when you look at a mystery there has to be rules and and you're leaving clues and you find out who the you know the who the who done it is you know the suspense story is the building and the building to it to a major climax 
you know, at the end, but it's not so dark or it's, it's just one of those, you know, building kind of books. A thriller just goes really, really quick, but horror has no rules because it's horror is not a writing style. Horror Mm -hmm. is a writing, I guess you want to Mm -hmm. say, you know, uh, in depth part of it, but there's no writing style in, in, and then so you can kind of go either way. It can be a fast paced book. It can be a slow paced book. It can be a mystery book. It can be, it can conform. It's a chameleon, kind of genre whatever it kind of wants to be it just has mm-hmm. it's just darker in the elements that you have but there's no rules to it you can do whatever you want to do there's, there's nothing i like to, that you, you, you know yeah there's no rules into horror i mean if you look at stephen king and you see the books that he write you know or jack ketchum or any of the great horror writers that have been out there there's no rules to any of their books you can have some paranormal aspects into them. You cannot. You can do whatever you want to do because it's horror. It feeds off the emotions of somebody going, "That's scary as shit," and I hope I'm never involved mm-hmm. in that. <laughs> Precisely, and I, I I do also bring in um, elements of mystery, but um, my mystery is not only um, who who done it, but it's like, what the hell did they do? You know, what is this? Where what are we? You know, and the horror sort of bleeds into that because it's. So if you see what is actually being done, that is usually the source of the horror for the point of view character in my books is that um, they see just how far someone was willing to go to achieve, you know, fill in the blank. And um, sometimes they're horrified because they love this person. Sometimes they're horrified because they realize they would have done the same thing. And you get a lot of that in this book um, that people who um, are, essentially good people i'm thinking of one character in particular um has done something truly horrible um she did it for all the right reasons but she shouldn't have done it um so yeah no i i um i i like that that there uh, the idea of there being no rules because that's kind of um i like tossing the rules out i like using um rules to lead people into a direction that they think they know what will happen and it's going, ha, ha, you know, you're not there. Yes. It's sort of like David lynching people, you know, because that's my theory about David Lynch. Is he tosses in so many sort of mythological and um, sort of literary um, allusions in his work. But as you get closer and closer, it just pops away. And you realize that it was, it was a red herring. Everything was everything is a red herring. And I do a little bit of that. I like tossing in, um, I mean, you'll see, some sort of um, bits about mirrors and Alice. So obviously I'm trying to get people to think sort of through the looking glass, but spoiler alert, this is not a, an Alice in Wonderland book. Um, although it sort of is a twist on that. If you think about it, I like inverting, I like inverting myths. I like inverting stories. Um, and the main, um, the main source of the, in my first series of books, the, the witching Savannah books there, it had a different um, mythology for where magic comes from. Um, I don't want to, if anyone hasn't read that, I don't want to spoil that, but it's, a, it's very different from this one where um, magic in this is um, I have returned to mythology and um, I am basically going back. I, I know this is going to sound crazy, but it really does work and it makes sense in the book to Babylonian mythology, to the mythology of um, Demutzi and uh, Inanna, sometimes known as uh, Tammuz and Ishtar, um, or Isis in some cases, um, that it's, um, it's related that um, that myth is actually a description of something that brings magic into this world. And um, it's, it's very dark. What, what went on in the actual religions of those times is very dark. And so that is what I'm digging into. And that's part of where the horror comes from is that you know, what was once thought of as religion, people in our modern clean world realize was horrific, um, which I think will probably happen another hundred years ago, but don't get me started on that. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, um, it, it's fun. It's fun. It's dark. It's, um, it's twisted. It's got a lot of um, very complex and complicated characters. Um, this is not an easy read. And I'm, I mean, whenever you, if you've seen my biography, it does mention that I, I have a degree in comparable literature and I studied French literature um, in the original and I studied Russian in the translation. And if you've ever read a Russian novel, you'll be like, Oh my God, he's trying to be the Tolstoy of fantasy, you know? Um, but it's, it, it sort of has that sort of, you know, interaction of characters where it's 
there are several characters. By the way, there's a character listing at the end of the book. So if you think you need help, it's there. Um, but I think like a little companion really, guide. A little companion guide, yeah. But I yeah. think I think that in order to do this justice, it's I, I'm dealing with <clears throat> excuse me three different families, and it's a family saga. It deals with um, family relationships, inter-family relationships, intra-family relationships, the the casual betrayals, the planned betrayals, the unintended betrayals, um, the uh, attempts to come back together, the failures at that. So it's much more than just uh, a story of witches. It's, it's, it's a story of family, and um, you can't have family without a lot of characters. So that's, that's why. You can't have covens without a lot of characters. Um, so it's, it's, it's big. It's complex. It's a witch book. I mean, witches are complex. I, part of the reason I'm fascinated by the concept is that with a witch, you can, um, you can address basically anything because witches are open to experience. So it's, it's fun to write them. And so you, de- I mean, you can definitely tell you are a man who loves words. You just love <laughs> words. I mean, studying all those languages, you're just you're just a word lover, and and that's and, and your enthusiasm is is so refreshing to kind of hear somebody so into their work and so excited about what they write that you know that's one of the things that my wife got right away when she wrote it. She was she she kind of sat there and she goes, "This guy just likes to write." You kind of get that sense. You just like to write. I love telling stories. I, 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 you know, I find it difficult to think of myself as an author because you hear like these angels singing in the background when you hear that word. Um, and writer too, because writer. I mean, I do love language, but I, I am not. I'm not a poet, and I'm not um, someone who's going to spend you know twelve days looking for the mot juste. I will only spend six days looking for it. You know. Um, but I tried to, my first series, I consciously aimed at um, a reading level, um, a seventh grade reading level, which most people in this country are at around a seventh grade reading level. Um, That's sad. And so I wanted my book to, well, you know, it is what it is. And I wanted my story to be as enjoyed by as many people as possible. Um, in this series, I wanted to, um, I wanted to use, you know, more colorful, more precise language in many cases. And so, this is a bit it's a bit harder it's a harder read um it's more complex so i think that some people may not be able to warm to it because of that but um i think that the people who have you know got into it realize the purpose of this that i'm trying to um i mean first of all it's i'm it's a creole once a creole family um actually technically two creole families but we won't get into that just yet cuz that'd be a bit of a spoiler i think um mm-hmm. but they speak multiple languages. Um, and so I try to bring some of that in as well. Um, and they are, they're all well-educated and they have grown up within like five miles of each other. So they will have a similar vocabulary regardless of their character or background. And, um, you know, they basically, they, they have good vocabulary. So it's, it's, it's a bit harder to read, but I think that, um, I like learning words from books. I learn words from books all the time. And that's part of what, you know, I enjoy about reading is that when I see a word, I'm like, ooh, I don't know that one. I pop out the dictionary or if I have my Kindle, if I'm lucky enough to have my Kindle in hand, I will just be press the little thing and get the yeah. you know, definition to pop up. But, yeah, I, love I think that. that reading, it should be a learning experience. It shouldn't be a stretch. It shouldn't necessarily – I mean, I love reading for entertainment. I really do. Um, but I think that it's okay to, you know, give people something to chew on to. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's always books that you read that, you know, you kind of call the brainless books that you can kind of sit down and, you re- you know, you don't really need to pay attention, I guess you want to say. But then there's some books when, yeah, the, it comes a time when you do want to sit down and, and you want to work that brain and to kind of pay attention and really get into a much deeper story than just a, I guess you want to say, you know, just more of a surface story that, you know, mm-hmm. people always say, oh, it's a brainless movie. You don't have to really think about. And then those movies you really have to think about. Books are no different. I would argue, though, that the, the works, the books, and the movies that we call brainless are quite often incredibly well-written because it is not easy. They are well-written. It's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy no. to do that. It is not easy to make something that is an easy experience. It's, it's, I would think in a lot of ways it's probably harder for the writer. Um, and it takes an incredibly talented writer to make something that is easy to consume. Um, yeah. That I mean, first of all, I think they're, you know, they're pulling their own ego out quite a bit when they're doing that, and they're looking for a way of um, reaching out to 
many people and to entertain many people. And I, I think that that is a talent in and of itself. Um, so I have, I, I, you know, I love these books. I, I read them myself. Uh, they're a lot of fun. I've written a couple myself, um, uh, at least according to the people. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy both. I like the breezy read. I like something that's going to make me think. I like something that's going to teach me something too. And if it's just a new vocabulary word, I'm all for that. Well, tell everybody where the best place is to find you, your website, social media, all that fun stuff that you got to talk about now. Okay. You can find me at uh, jdhornauthor.com. That will lead you everywhere else. Um, you can find me on Facebook. At My page is actually, long story short, my JD. I really do go by JD. Um, but my name is Jack Douglas Horn, and you will find that because I set it up the wrong way, and I can never figure out how to change it. Jack Douglas Horn um, on Facebook. If you look for that, you'll find me. Um, I'm on Twitter as uh, JD Horn author, or actually author author JD Horn on Twitter. Um, and um, you'll see that if you go there, I'm usually just you know going on about politics, or this week trying to sell you my book, or most of the time sharing pictures of my Chihuahua. So it's worth going there just to see pictures of Kirby, who is the most adorable dog in the universe. I don't know. I would have to say that my Chihuahua might beat your Chihuahua. Uh, we'll have to have, we'll have to have a Chihuahua throwdown one of these days. I think that sounds like a challenge, Curbs. Yeah, I'm telling you, we have a deerhead Chihuahua. What kind is yours? He is also a deerhead. Um, he is oh, red and he has, and he has green eyes. He has green eyes. So top that. <laughs> I don't know, Chopper. Come here. Let me see your eyes. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Chopper. I think. I think his are brown. I think his. Yeah, his are brown. Oh, I'm sure darker. he's beautiful. There's no such yeah. thing as an ugly chihuahua. They're all gorgeous. No, they're all not, the but gorgeous. I'll tell you, man, they got – if you're going to get a chihuahua, just be ready to know that they are very needy dogs. Well, you know, part of what people aren't aware is that pit bulls and chihuahuas are the two most euthanized dogs in this country. And it's largely because people will see chihuahuas, think they're cute, and think they're toys. But they are actual dogs, and they take work, and they do require a responsible pet owner. And so um, yep. if you are looking for a chihuahua, there are so many in shelters. And you, you hear adopt, don't shop, that is true. My, this little dog is a rescue, and he rescued me. Um, they are, you know, they need homes, and they, are, they respond so quickly to love. So oh, never, yeah, they do. never buy a chihuahua. There are so many chihuahuas, beautiful, beautiful chihuahuas. Some puppies, you don't need a puppy. Uh, trust me, no. it's better to get a dog that's already been house-trained. Um, but if you want a puppy, you can find them. Through rescues. If you want an older dog, you can find them through rescues. They are so full of love. I love my dog. I would say, you know, get out and adopt one today. If you if you're even thinking about getting a Chihuahua, go get one. They're the best dogs. They are, and they are loyal to a fault. I'll tell you. <laughs> they are. So, well, hey, JD, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a fascinating conversation with you. Nothing but the best with the with the series, and the book is out now, and the book is called. The uh, King of Bones and Ashes. It is the first book in your newest Witches of New Orleans Book One series. So please keep us updated uh, with the next book oh, coming well. out and whatnot, because we would love to be able to uh, uh, maybe have you on for book two and, and you know review them and, and see what you got going on. So please keep in touch. I will. June 26th, I'd love to come back. Sounds like, sounds like a plan, so we'll plan that one out. Cool. Thank you. All right. So there you go. Thank you so much, J.D. Have a good one. You too. All right, bye-bye. So there you go, everybody. That is author J.D. Horn. And, again, the book is called The King of Bones and Ashes. Make sure you visit jdhornauthor.com for more information on everything. That is your portal to find out for Facebook, Twitter, and uh, to kind of go on all the tangents that you know he has going on with his other writing and his other series. So make sure you check that out. So we want to thank, of course, David Putnam for being on. It's been a fabulous show. We want to thank you all for listening, however, wherever, whenever you listen to the show. It's always great to have you a part of us uh, for an hour or a half hour, two hours, however long we have the show. We kind of change things up. Don't forget about the Story Blender, and don't forget about Inside Thrill Radio, and, of course, beyond the cover, all four shows we have here on Suspense Radio. There is something for everyone. So until next time, everybody, we want to say keep reading, enjoy, stay safe. We'll see you all on the other side. Bye-bye.